You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. I'm your host, Robin, and my guest today is uh, Mike Dawson. Mike has been on the show before, I guess, three years ago? I think that sounds about right. Yeah, Roughly 2008. Three... Yeah, there we sorry. go. Mike has uh, done his research better than I have. Um, probably because on top of being a cartoonist with his new book, Troop 142, from those fine, fine gentlemen... I don't know if I want to use a gentleman for, name gentleman for them at uh, Secret Acres. Are they gentlemen? Are Barry and Leon gentlemen? They're gentlemanly. Lee. Um, <laughs> Mike also hosts uh, a plethora of podcasts now. Um, the Ink Panthers, a nicely named uh, duo show of him and uh, fellow New York cartoonist Alex Robinson, as well as several roving Panther guests. Um, including John Kirschbaum, and uh, I'm totally going to mispronounce this uh, same, Tony Consiglio? Consiglio. Consiglio, there we go. Uh, <laughs> Antonino Consiglio, sorry. The, the Desert Panther, as you uh, call him, and I think there are other Panthers, um, but listeners of that can can check it out. Ink Panthers, as well as the Ink Panthers uh, side project, uh, Pro Tips, um, which I guess it's you interviewing cartoonists. Yeah. which kind of melded into the uh, comics journal Talkies, um, which sounds like something Seth should be hosting um, <laughs> by the title. Uh, I like that. I like that. I've never heard someone, because it is actually technically the comics journal Talkies, right? Because the name of the show is TCJ Talkies. It's the comics journal Talkies. Yeah, that's better. That sounds a little bit, that sounds a little uh, more credibility. <laughs> <laughs> Um, playing at fine cinema houses near you. Uh, <laughs> is there anything else I'm missing recently? You also, your, uh, I guess your, uh, debut graphic novel came out, uh, four years ago, five years ago, uh, Freddie and Me, a, um, memoir about growing up, um, and your fascination with Freddie Mercury and Queen and how that kind of tied into your life as a, um, Immigrant growing up in America, yeah. um, the immigrant experience, I guess yeah. one could call it, and sort of the uh, sort of the non-traumatic immigrant experience. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like sort of, a, sort of just came over here and we were here and it was okay. Sort of you know the stuff of immigrant legend. <laughs> <laughs> um, as well, uh, Ace Face from yeah. Ad House Books, which was yeah. the book you came on to discuss last time um so thank you mike uh, that was a pretty rambling intro i apologize you did for really my... well though you you really you knew it all i knew it all good. from the top of my head no <laughs> prep <excellent>. no prep <laughs> <laughs> how are you doing today mike uh, i'm good i was working today i just I'm home now um yeah so i'm okay it's been busy at my day job what do you do as your day job i know you do uh, all this other stuff what what keeps Mike fed? I work at a company um, where we produce uh, children's educational material uh, online, and schools subscribe to it. And what they get is uh, like they get animation, like short animation uh, movies on uh, on like a huge variety of topics, um, and they sort of use it in the classroom as kind of like a, a jumping off point into a lesson. Um, but what I'm actually doing there right now is a is uh building games um like educational games oh, okay um, so i'm uh, i'm like 
this sort of hybrid uh, doing design and animation, but also project managing, because I kind of just have this whole secondary project manager career that I kind of like, you know, have, have been working, you know, I guess it's been going since around 1999 or so, like working at various dot-coms and stuff. So does the game component, does that tie into um, you playing Risk with all these fellow cartoonists? Well, I do love games. <laughs> like, like I, I like, I feel like I'm sort of a busy guy, but the, so the one thing that like I really feel like falls by the wayside is like getting to play any games at all. Because yeah, like I, I used to play quite regularly like Magic: The Gathering, Hero Clicks, which is the the game with all the little uh, Marvel and DC superhero characters, mm-hmm. and and it's like you know these are collectible strategy games, the kind of games you get together with your friends for hours. And play these games <laughs> and argue over minutia and rule books and stuff like that. Uh, and then more recently, yeah, I was playing like online Risk with some other cartoonists, um, but it's just not time for it. Um, when you'd play Hero Clicks, would it be the DC or the Marvel universe? You know, this is sad because you know you have to remember that we're grown men playing <laughs> this game. <laughs> so like the heyday of my Hero Clicks. Like, my Heroclix heyday would have been, like, 2003, 2004, 2005. So I was definitely in my... How old am I? I guess, yeah, I was in my... I guess I was 30. Yeah, I was turning around 30. And I do recall for a while, like, being, like, real pure about, like, only Marvel Heroclix. I would not mix (laughs) universes. You know, because I wanted to have a, play a pure game, and then like there was some controversy when certain members of the group started mixing up their teams. You know, having a you know like a, the Amalgam Universe or something like that with the. Uh, <laughs> well, let's Batman be honest. With Captain America, who ever heard of such a thing? But really, you want Batman, no matter what you're doing. You want Batman. Yeah, well, Batman, Spider-Man are like those are the characters in every hero clicks. Uh, you know, as they come out with waves of new toys, there would always be a new variation on those ones. You know, which it gets. You know. I was really su- I was I was really surprised on Halloween here, and uh, Batman was the number one costume of choice. I was very happy about that, and it's nice really? to see. Yeah. Oh, I I mean, that's a couple years back. He was, I guess, hot, but I don't remember. Was did the Dark Knight spawn a lot of like Batman costumes? You think? I <laughs> I I don't know if if it would have because I don't see a lot of kids uh, watching a f- three hour movie of um, Christian Bale growling. Yes, and it's such a dark movie. Yeah, like it's like it's relentless. Like I went to see that uh, two weeks before my daughter was born, so my wife was like you know, explodingly pregnant, like swollen. And it just sort of like, I'm just like, this. it's not like I can't take dark things, but it's just like the mindset I was in. I'm like, I need there to be good in this world. <laughs> this movie. Like I really needed, you know, the end where um, where there's bombs on the ships. You know, the Joker has put bombs yeah. all over the ships. I'm like, I really need these people not to get blown up in this movie. I can't watch a movie where, like, because <laughs> it just felt like it could go there because it was so, like, such a nihil- you know, the character was so nihilistic and you know, it was so dark. I mean, I think it's a great movie. I do, actually, except for the growly Batman stuff, but it's kind of well, like I mean, they had to put that in there. You know, they had, oh, we also have to include Batman in this movie. Yeah. You know, this otherwise good movie. 
but does he really have to growl? Couldn't they just get the guy that did the voice on the cartoon? I don't to, know. Maybe. To do his voice. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the growling is a little silly. Where he's, yeah, he's. I don't know. You know, it's it reminds me of myself when I've been angry and trying to intimidate people, and you sort of go to that yelly stage. I'm Batman. <laughs> it was actually sort of kind of not intimidating people at a certain point. You're sort of embarrassing yourself. <laughs> you're do, you know, a little too uh, emphatic. But anyway, um, are, you not, are you a gamer? No, you? not at all, actually. It's uh, it's an unusual thing, I guess. No, maybe not. I don't even play video games, really. I just... I uh, mean, I don't, yeah, I don't play any video games. I mean, it's just all stuff I, like, I wish I had like a whole second lifespan in which mm-hmm. to, to do that. You know, because I always liked the games where it was like you stay up all night, you know, campaigning or playing Risk or, you know, whatever. I used to. I used to play video games, but I think when I started school, it just kind of dropped off because I was like, I spent a day playing, I think it was Fable, um, and I realized I could have gotten my paper written that day, and I... <laughs> shouldn't be doing this ever uh not that i didn't find other things to uh take up that time um but when it got to that point it was like yeah i should be more constructive and uh yeah well i have that be i that feeling is familiar to me i'll be i spend an evening playing hero clicks with my friends and sort of be leaving all kind of cloudy headed and sort of in a kind of bad tempered <laughs> it's like you know five hours of intense concentration and then like you know unless you're the person who won you sort of feel like well that was not time well spent you know sitting here eating I mean it was fun though eating Chinese food drinking beers and arguing over line of sight and uh, things like that so now you fill your time doing several podcasts yeah which That's, is uh, yeah <laughs> Which I will say is more constructive use of time as a podcaster myself. Um, you know? I think so, right? You, you, I don't, I don't end the podcast all cloudy headed and bad tempered. I mean, maybe you do. Maybe I've had a couple. <laughs> I, I've had, I've had a couple. It's like paper while I was talking to that guy. Oh, why did I do yeah, this? That's some that were. Uh, I mean, what's the longest you spend though on an individual conversation? Because like I find, the reason I could justify it is it takes an hour. It's not too bad, you know. Um, I find a- an hour is a good amount f- to have a conversation. Um, but some guys, like with Craig Thompson, we had a really great conversation going, and it really it had to keep going. And I think that one was longer than an hour, wasn't it? Yes, that was longer. That was longer. Um, and then there's other folks where it's so hard to nail them down to get them that I use every second I can to talk to them. So like Lorenzo Matade, um, that was long. We did one session. It was the first time I did it in two parts. So we did one session that was a little over an hour. And then he's like, oh, I have to go do some work. Um, so it's okay. Well, I really I feel we really need to continue this because we really haven't covered much. So we did another session that was well over two hours long. And... Um, it's you my long good at the end of that, right? I felt amazing. It was about yeah. four o'clock in the morning because he was in France and I, being in Vancouver, had nine hours time difference, and he wanted to start his day with it. Um, but it was amazing, and it really that was one of those interviews that just left me totally jazzed and like, okay, this guy is is amazing. Um, so that's a positive thing. I mean, I've had that yeah. like where you've had some that like when it's late at night, I actually have a hard time falling asleep afterwards because it was like so sort of. You know, the you know it was a good conversation with someone I was excited to talk to, 
you know, and I was happy to have had a conversation with someone I didn't know. I mean, that's part of what I like about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, do you have that like where it's people like, like it's a good excuse to, to like, spend some time speaking to someone whose work you like, in you know, admired. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. Exactly. Well, that's yeah. one of the reasons for myself. God, I didn't want to share this interview with me. Um, good <laughs> going, Mike. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, definitely one of the one of the reasons for doing this is to really get to know someone on a different level, and you kind of decide how you want to know them. Yeah. Um, and how you want that conversation to go. Uh, it, and it can be really interesting, and it really kind of develops your own relationship with this person where when you see them, you definitely know them a completely different way. So when I saw Matadi in Toronto at TCAF, I already had this uh, amazing connection with him, was able to have yes. like more talks. And You're like, remember me? I was the sleepy guy on the other end of the phone. <laughs> oh, man, I was so wired on uh, Red Bull. Oh, you were? You were yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, and also it's like, yeah, because like, uh, I am a comics fan. Like, I like I'm a fan of comics. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure all cartoonists. I think it's hard to stay a fan as long as you are a cartoonist. You know, like, so for me, but like as part of me trying to like maintain that, like that sort of joy of reading comics. It's sort of like I like it to get to talk to someone whose work I admire and like have a better reason to engage than just like to be at like a, in a line and a signing and trying to think of something clever to say. Like, well, I have that. Two seconds of like, <laughs> you, know, you know, which is hard, you know. You sort of, you know, but I think the, you know, I'm gonna ask you one more question. No, go ahead. It's uh, just that, like, do you find reading all the books that you read to do these interviews does that impact your ability to be a fan of comics, or are you sort of maintaining it? Um, it's interesting. It's an interesting point because for myself, I maybe wouldn't read all the same work um, that I'm prepping for interviews for. Mm-hmm. Um, like, my tastes... Th- what I cover on the, ra- on the radio show covers mostly my, my taste. Um, I try not to interview someone if I'm not into their work, but some stuff I wouldn't necessarily have read, but because I'm trying to get to know that creator, I read everything they've done. Um, yeah. But... As far as being a fan of comics, I would say it's made me more of a fan. Um, so it's been better. You know? Yeah. So you're like, oh, it's the stack of a thousand books I have to read for <laughs> time to go to work, clocking in and your podcast punch card. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely, uh, it, it, it makes me decide how I take the get to work if I take the quick sub or uh, sky train in, um, which is our version of a subway. Um, I don't get to sit, but if I take the bus, I can sit and read so like yesterday I was able to sit in the bus and read your book um, oh okay so it's all fresh it's all fresh yeah um, I mean, but that means that that's something I've noticed is yeah that as cartoonists cartoonists as they get you know in the industry for longer I think some it's easy to remain a reader and then some it's actually a little harder because they sort of like become a little professionally jaded in a way and they're sort of looking at everything in sort of you know relationship to their work you know, and then like if I talked to like Jessica Abel, I talked to her um, because and how she edits the best American comics um, mm. thing, and she also teaches at SVA. So is you know as a as a large onslaught of comics that sort of like have to like get you know sort of process in a rapid way. And she admitted that you know it does make it harder to be a reader of comics when you sort of like looking at it in such like a professional light all the time. Um, so I yeah, thought, I think it's an interesting thing. I mean, like, it's just sort of like I want to not go that way, but I don't know. Well, I mean, also, it's 
with, with that, she has the slush pile, which we don't necessarily have. Um, I mean, to prep for a collection like that, she yeah. has to read a lot of shitty comics. I guess. <laughs> um, sorry, folks. There are some <laughs> shitty comics I don't want to read. It it no, happens. Um, well, actually, I was a I was an Ignatz judge this last year, um, uh, and I received tons and tons of books in the mail, and that actually was hard. You know, to like because I wanted to be a good judge and I wanted to like judge things, you know, like fairly. Mm-hmm. Like, but like to like, it was like you know the first box shows up and I go through all, every every comic. I'm like seriously sitting down like, <laughs> like you know making decisions, making piles for like how I, you know how I feel about you know this is a definite or whatever you know. But like as it got towards the end and like you know boxes were showing up like in, you know multiple boxes on a da- daily basis. You know it's it difficult. Jeez. Oh, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I let my but my I had to make my decision making process much faster. And like you know so much work. I have to just be like, you know, I don't really need to sit down and look at this to know that I'm not going to be nominating it for something, you know? Like, I can tell. I've I've done nominations for, um, for awards before, and it's not a, it's not a fun process. And it's hard when, when you're on the jury part and deciding what wins and what doesn't win, um, and you see something that you just don't agree with, and yeah, it's complex. But it's nice to have it's your nice. name read out loud at the festival. <laughs> Makes it all worth it. Your jurors were blah, blah, blah. And that's when you get the, oh, how come my book wasn't chosen? <laughs> yes, that happened. That happened. <laughs> oh, well. But anyway, so that's over now. I'm not going to be a Ignaz judge again. I don't think it's a repeat performance, so, you know. <laughs> you, you've gotten your boxes of swag and uh, not to be repeated. Unless you yeah. do some other awards. Um, what was the decision for you to start podcasting uh, with with Alex? Um, well, Alex and I, so, like, we've been friends. Like, we're good friends. Um, we're going on, like, a decade now. When I, sometime after I moved to Man- to New York, I was living in, uh, I'm not sure if I was in Brooklyn or Manhattan at the time, but, like, um, I had read Alex's comics in the late 90s. Um, when he was serializing Box Office Poison. And I was sort of... I had a actually sort of more of a friendship going with with Antonino Consiglio, uh, Tony Consiglio, um, the, who was doing Double Cross at the time. Um, and we were friends through the mail, like, you know, how it was back in the day, where people would, like, you know, write each other letters and send each other drawings and stuff. Um, when I moved to New York, I... I'm making this much longer than it needs to be, but I'll, <laughs> <laughs> I'll get, I'll get we held but, hands and skipped down Broadway. <laughs> but when I moved to New York, um, I became friends with Alex and Tony. Tony um, ended up moving out of the city um, shortly after we started hanging out. But then Alex and I would get together fairly frequently, um, buy comics on a Wednesday, and go to the Irish bar next to Jim Hanley's Universe um, Irish Pub and just talk for a couple hours and hang out, you know, sometimes with friends or sometimes just us. And it was always a really nice, fun thing to do. It was like, you know, standing man date that we had, you know, and like the people at the bar knew us, and it's the only time that it's ever happened in my life that, I've, you know, people at a, a pub knew who I am. But anyway, once I had a child, I wasn't doing that as much anymore. I was uh, occasionally getting out to do that, but it's just not quite the same thing where you can just go out on a weekly basis. 
you know, when you have a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so Not I that I know, it, but I'll take your word for it. Well, I mean, yeah, it becomes... I mean, you can go out. There is technically another person in the house who can watch the child, but I don't know if I were to use up all my credits. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to the comic store with Alex. Insert more quarters. <laughs> you know, you have to pick and choose your battles, so, you know, there's other things I like to do. Um, so I think part of it was sort of like just taking uh, the, the way we talked in general and just making a show out of it. And making a decision in those early episodes to make it like absolutely non-comics related mm-hmm. um, because very paranoid about like saying things that would offend people you know like like putting things out there that people are going to take the wrong way and we, I think we sort of calmed down on that a lot and we bring comics we talk about comics actually fairly frequently now um, but the initial, initial idea was just to be like let's just talk about regular life and we'll bring out the cartoonists on we'll do the same thing like we'll have guests come in but we won't ask them about comics um yeah so i mean that's what and you know it's just fun you know it's kind of i like it in a way that it's like easy and doesn't require the same sort of you know like pressure uh, as making comics does but it's still like a creative outlet you know it's like it's more like improv and less like sort of you know the slower Mm -hmm. process of writing you know do you find um, now that you've been doing this for a while, and you you have I'm sure you have a pretty substantive listener base um, among cartoonists, especially? Do you find yourself careful though about what you're saying because you know your peers are listening? Um, I I I don't know. Like I am always a little paranoid about that sort of thing. Um, I don't think that there's so much. Like, I seem to have gotten to a point in which I sort of naturally am not saying things that I regret. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I got a life of that. (laughs) Like, But I do, I have less moments where I'm like, oh, I should take that part out or whatever. I think it's just sort of like overdoing, you know, we're well over 100 episodes now. Like, you know, I think we've sort of gotten sort of a a good sense for, like, what we feel comfortable discussing, you know? Mm -hmm. You mentioned editing um have you pulled much stuff out of it or do you kind of just have a free flow conversation um well so this is another thing coming back to like you know the amount of time in the day and when we started it i I was very hyper um about editing like i really like was on top of it and i spent a lot longer editing our shows and i wanted to make them you know quick and you know each one like about a half hour long and like trim out like whole sequences if they felt like flabby or whatever and you know and doing more like you know pruning you know the the things that we were saying like mm-hmm. to sort of make sure I wasn't saying anything that could come off the wrong way um, but I just there isn't the time for that kind of thing like it, you know to, to try to keep up a weekly pace you know I need to just sort of like you know if, if we have like a big technical glitch or whatever I'll write down the number you know, on the timestamp when it happens, and I'll do that, but I really can't spend more than, like, a half hour, like, doing the production part. Otherwise, you know, I might already feel like I am neglecting making comics because of podcasts, you know. Like, I I can't have it be. (laughs) Otherwise, I spend six hours a week, you know, editing them and stuff. Yeah, so it has to... I mean, I I don't know if you edit it a lot, but... I don't do any editing, actually. I may edit a thing here or there, like you said, that's like a gap, um, or when I say something horribly inappropriate, uh, which never happens, really. 
Unless you see but him I in person, then it's otherwise. But then, then he's nonstop. <laughs> well, there's a reason they call me the Dirty Bird. Um, well, what I was going to say is that, like, don't you think that's partially because you're now have done it for you've done like six years now right six years exactly yep yeah and like i've done it i've been podcasting on ink panthers two years two and a half years something like that and i think you just sort of get confident enough in having conversations that that you know that like it's all okay to keep you know there might still be boring parts <laughs> that's all right <laughs> like when we talk about pens um well for me it started because i started doing the show on the radio and so we would be sitting live in the studio oh, yeah. for an hour. And so that would be, that kind of dictated the format. I mean, I don't do them live on the radio anymore just because I don't have the time. Um, yeah, but that's, sorry, that's interesting because you probably had to learn a different skill, which is just to sort of live with, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like saying things that you might not have said, you know, you might want to have taken out or whatever, you know. And the best is when someone calls you on it. <laughs> like live radio, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna fill the hour. No, just yeah. when like you're out with friends and some cartoonist that you really respect, uh, totally takes a dig at you because of something you said on the radio show three years ago. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't remember. Well, I, if I could say this, another thing that I kind of am thinking is happening, I don't know if this, this might sound a little too sort of like saccharine, but I actually think that doing the podcast. It's made me feel a bit more connected to the cartooning community, and like in a way that I I know I used to be much more like you know oh this guy's you know lousy cartoonist and blah, blah blah you know I don't like this person or whatever and I feel like a lot less of that now, like and I think it's because I have more chance to interact with different you know creators. Mm-hmm. And I still I mean it's still there. I think all creative people you know have their people who they're oh I don't like that person or you know that works overrated you know but. I think it's just definitely like it was a this has been like a good opportunity for me to sort of feel more connected to the community in general, I guess. You know. Yeah. Whatever it what Well, I what mean you're community there is, I don't know. There's I don't, not really one. I don't know how much you're interviewing folks outside of your like with the talkies when you're interviewing folks outside of your immediate circle because like obviously for me being in Vancouver I have a couple of people that are in my circle of cartoonists to hang out with, but like yeah. most of the folks aren't folks that I would normally interact with. Um just by geographic limitations. Yeah. Um, so how much has that been with you, with folks that you've brought on to the shows? Um, I've, I've had some where I've never spoken to them at all. Like I had Jason Lutz on. Uh, Howard, Howard Cruz I'd met once at a convention, but like I didn't know him. And, you know, those are harder because, you know, I feel like I, do, I need to do a lot more research. Um, but, you know, I don't know. It's... It's nice to bring people on when I know I've already had conversation conversations with them, and I can sort of replicate some of that. You mm-hmm. know, like people, I'm sort of like Tom K came on, and he's someone I always like to talk to. You know, you know Tom Kaczynski. Oh yeah, no. If when Tom and I get together, we talk about obscure music that no one else likes. Yes, we argue about <laughs> the rights and wrongs of communism, and <laughs> <laughs> it is wrong. <laughs> um, Tom K is a fantastic cartoonist that everyone should check out. Tell me about your uh, preparation process. Um, I know we're kind of getting into the Ink Studs version of pro tips for podcasting, uh, <laughs> but it, we'll talk about we'll talk about Troop One Forty Two towards the end or something, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll 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 do half and half. Um, <laughs> I mean, sure the pub, those gentlemen at Secret Acres will get angry otherwise. What are they going to do to me? Uh, 
But anyway, you asked my preparation. Yeah, I mean, I don't often get a chance to talk to someone that does something very similar to what I do. Um, so it's nice to hear kind of other angles on it. So Well, um, when I first... So when I was doing... So we did the Ink Panthers for, you know, about two years. And then I decided, like, oh, I think it would be fun for to do more interviewee type things. And it was, like, something Alex was less into. And so I wanted to do it, and I brought on people I was friends with. You know, like, like I spoke to Dustin Harbin, uh, Gabby Schultz, uh, uh, um, G.B. Tran, you know, people who I, I already knew. Um, then the, the first person who I didn't know at all was Frank Santoro. Um, but I just, you know, I liked the way he wrote and presented himself online, I thought it would be interesting to talk to. And I think he, at the time, had written something about, like, day jobs versus being an artist, and I mm -hmm. thought we could specifically talk about that. So with him, I did more actual, like, research. Like, you know, like, obviously, read, make sure and read more of his comics and read more past interviews with him. And that Frank Centauri one was the last pro tips that I did before I started doing TCJ Talkies. And those early TCJ talkies, I was doing the same thing. Where I was reading a lot of interviews, like I was pulling out old comics journals, and I was rereading. Like I reread the Evan Dorkin interview and uh, Jessica Abel one, and I tracked down like old Howard Cruz issues and stuff. Um, but and I think that's good because I think that a guest appreciates when they, you know what you're talking about. I think, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I also think it could some cases, especially when I don't know the person that well, it could sort of make me a little bit too sort of like buttoned up, like a little too kind of rigid. Well, it's funny um, because I would never, I, I will not read someone's other interviews when I interview someone because I, if I read a question answered in that interview, yeah. I won't ask it. But there's no guarantee necessarily, um, and it's quite frequently folks haven't read that comic journal interview. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a huge chance that people haven't read the comics journal interview, you know, for like, because some of those comics journals, I mean, they're decades old, and, you know, like, it's probably actually, yeah, it's like easier in a way to listen to a podcast than to track down an interview. Mm -hmm. But I know what you're saying about like, oh, I wouldn't want to ask the same question, or it may like kind of take that question out of your head. But on the other hand, like, if you read the responses, it was sort of like a good sort of way to come up with different questions, sort of like yeah. Bill someone else had asked but I don't really want to do that anymore like I felt like I was sort of getting a little too kind of uptight about it well it's also funny because on the, on the same time you see someone had an interesting response that you want to jump off of at the same time the interview was done 15 years ago <laughs> so how relevant is that response that had something like that where I'm like you once said and here's a quote and they're like that's old that's old interview <laughs> Yes, but I found it, and I thought of a question related to it, so now here it is. Answer it. You know. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I mean, like, so now I try to read the work, and I will do read up some, like, online interviews, but, like, you know, like, sometimes I won't, you know. It's good to know a little bit of biographical information, I think. Like, how, how deep will you get into the work, say, for someone like Howard Cruz? Are you going to go and track down old underground comics that he was in, or are you just going to, like, stick with what's readily available? Well, the other thing that I, that I think is very different for me than probably for you is I don't think I've had anyone come on now where I wasn't already, like, fairly familiar with their work. Mm -hmm. So, like, and it's because I have a much smaller pool of 
interviews that I've done, and it's something that kind of worries me a little bit as I continue doing this. You know, I'm definitely going to get to the point where I'm like, going to run out of friends to <laughs> to bring on, and <laughs> you know, and I don't know how it is for you, but I also find like trying to quote unquote book people is kind of like I don't I hate it. Like like sometimes people will write you back, and like you know, and then you know, and it's just sort of like presenting yourself to people you don't know, and it's sort of like you know. I don't know. Like it's, it's for me. It's kind of like right now. It's been pretty easy because the people I've brought on, I, I at least know their work very well, and I, in many cases, I know them a little bit personally. Not all, mm-hmm. but you know, as it, as it keeps going, I mean, I'm sort of like, we may just be here's Tom K again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's. I mean, it'll get interesting for you because I mean, you will be changing a little bit about how you prep for these interviews because you may start prepping long term. Which, oh, maybe, yeah. which is something I've I've started doing, especially like say someone like Justin Green, who I will interview eventually, and I've been planning to interview him for about two years, um, but I'm waiting to amass all this stuff by him and have okay. the time to put in for this extended interview to sit down and kind of understand his work in a new way um, and really dive into it. Yeah, I don't know. It's well, I mean that's probably the better way to prepare anyway, because I mean interviews with people I guess are good to read but what I'm hoping to do as I get better or do more of them unless I stop doing them which is possible (laughs) (laughs) I mean I don't know let's see I just play it out you know I take it as it comes Um, but what I want to do I like the ones more where we get a bit more into what the work is about and like a little less on like you know like how are you paying the bills yeah (laughs) Because that eventually, that just inevitably brings me down. You know? <laughs> oh, wait, and that's how we started today. Um... <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying for me personally. Like, when yeah. I'm, if I'm always asking people, you know, how are you managing to, you know, keep hold it together to, <laughs> to produce any comics whatsoever and still be alive, you know, it's kind of like, uh... <laughs> Yeah. You know, because I have to think about those problems too, you know. You know, the big question of, like, how do you be a creative person, like, have goals and ambition to do things, to try to make comics, but, like, you know, I also want to have a family, and, you know, you know, everyone has to sort of figure out their own way, but it's like, you know, there is not a lot of easy options, except for have a hit book. <laughs> well, you better start writing something that, uh, I'm just kidding. Uh... <laughs> well, that's the thing, like, but I don't think... Anyone who even thought, like, oh, what's the formula for a hit book? I mean, like, I think it was, uh, the joke is someone who has cancer and goes into a concentration camp. And, um, what's the other part to it? Tom Spurgeon refers to Israel. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like t- something totally ridiculous. Like, um, it's this old comics journal joke. I, I, yeah, I'm failing on you for my memory. No, but I mean, even then. Wasn't that cancer fixing book? Wasn't that like kind of a flop? Yeah, I didn't even open it. <laughs> um, well, I, I haven't read it either, actually, because to me it looked a little bit sort of like I'm not sure if it's like it felt a little bit kind of like you know books. Oh, this could be something I'm gonna regret saying. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, there are comics. It felt like kind of like like for- it had been forced. thought out to that degree, like you know, yeah. like, book publishers kind of like, well, this will sort of certainly you know top the charts. Yeah. You know? I, I read in the comics journal that the key to a hit book is about cancer and having it in the concentration camp. 
Yeah. I mean, well, there's also you could have it equated with movies. I mean, you know, something like uh, Forrest Gump, where you go into all these formulas, um, and here's my hit creation, right? Yeah. I mean, so. but like, so I would like obviously to have a book that had a big audience, but I don't know how to. Like the times when I have tried to do that, like I've been, like I don't know if you ever read an online comic I did. It was, it was called Jack and Max. I um, have. You I... may know some of the short stories because they're in the Ace Face collection. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're these yeah. like little superpowered brothers, and it was sort of this manga, sort of pastiche. Is that the right word? Or like yeah. kind of not a nod to manga. Homage. An homage. There you go. And I. And I had done these short stories, and I I was very happy with the short stories because they were short, funny, and you know felt complete. And after finishing Freddy and Me, and having done the Ace Face Collection, and I sort of like, well, I want to do something where like I'm going to have a big hit, you know. So I tried to do a long story with those characters. I'm like, well, manga's popular, you know, and you know <laughs> that kind of thing. Like, <laughs> YA is what they're all, you know, everyone's talking about. You know, everyone wants a YA book, so here's my formula. And I don't think actually comics are bad, but I think I was sort of coming at it from the wrong like angle for me. Like I just sort of not able to do that kind of thing. Like it sort of like I couldn't help but like have the the relationship between the kids and their dad be kind of a little too dark and like <laughs> <laughs> like well, this thing like with the dad has the superpower to like to restart the timeline when his kids acted up. Yeah. Like, so, like, if his kids were bad, he's like, "I'm abandoning this timeline. I'm going back to ten minutes ago when you weren't bad." But the side effect I was trying to explore the story was that the versions of his kids from that timeline would just get stranded there, and he'd go back and start a new timeline with new kids, sort of with all these replicates of the kids. And it's, I don't think it's a bad idea, but like when I started like sending it out to publishers, they were like, sort of "Like, this is kind of <laughs> like, that's kind of awful." <laughs> you know, it's like it's not really like necessarily like something I'm good at like figuring out how to do like something's gonna be like oh this will have a big audience you know well why don't we use this as an opportune segue to chat about troop 142 um yes yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> something to have a huge audience <laughs> um well I really liked it thanks um no, it's it's a great book, and actually, I was really excited about this coming for a while because you had done the mini comics, and the mini comics were fantastic. And I was kind of surprised at the quality of work that you'd put into this. Um, that seemed like, how do I say this politely without offending people? It seemed like a mini comic just didn't do its just desserts. Oh, thanks. I mean, I like I knew that it was going to be a book. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, like I definitely had envisioned it like that, and the mini comics were just, um, you know, it was a, just a way in which to sort of get people aware of it, as as was putting it online, you know, because I felt with um, you want me to go into this sort of thing, like the decision to yeah make comics and go online and stuff. Yeah, I like, mean, I think there's a important discussion there around uh, commodifying. Um, and having that well, venue to it. Well, Freddie and me, which I think we talked about when I was on last time, you know, was so it was a. I think it may have been like a little bit of like publishers, the publishers who picked me up, you know, being a bigger book publisher, 
possibly sort of being like, well, this is an immigrant thing. It's got, you know, appeal to, you know, Queen fans and so on. So, therefore, you know, a, a safe bet. And it didn't do terrible, but it definitely didn't do great either. Um, but one thing I learned was that just because you're published by a quote-unquote big publisher doesn't actually mean anything in terms of, like, you know, like, awareness within, you know, comics, like, people actually reading your, your books, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, there's no, there's no sure way, like, no amount of publicity or PR is, is going to make everyone in comics, like, you know, become aware of something and read something, and that's what I want, is people to read it. Well, and they also, they don't know how, it's, book publishers don't really know comics, they don't know how well, no, to they, promote it. I mean, that's... Probably, I think a lot of people have probably talked about that in the last year or two because this has been a bit of a fallout of like, mm-hmm. you know, as cartoonists like myself who are like working in mini comics and, you know, you know, and are, are fairly well matched up with uh, alternative, um, you know, publishers, you know, like that's sort of a good match for like the type of work we're doing. Like, we had this experience where we were sort of like with this big book publisher, with, with these big expectations. Um, but you know, there's no, you know, there was no sort of understanding how Diamond worked. Like, like I was having conversations with the people who were the publishing the book. You know, sort of like, have you set it to previews? <laughs> or that is it going to be in previews? And they're like, well, how does that work? You know, like <laughs> we don't do that. You know, like, the, or you know, or is it going to be at conventions? And not really, you know, unless I go. Um, but I mean, I don't think that is the fault of the big book publisher I think it's just something that you that in those sort of you know heydays they sort of don't really realize that you know it doesn't you know whoever publishes you doesn't mean anything I mean possibly if you're published by drawn accordingly probably you have a decent chance of <laughs> checking you out no matter what but my feeling with Troop 142 was I knew like it's a book that I had wanted to write for a long time and it was something I knew I wanted to be you know, like, I wanted people to be aware of it, and I didn't want to sort of, you know, just sort of fly right under the radar again, you know, and I didn't know at the time who was going to publish it, but I just felt like it was important to me to, to make mini-comics and, and put it online and just sort of, you know, make people know that this book existed, because, you know, I, I thought it was good, you know, a better book, really, mm-hmm. you know, um, than Freddie and me. Like, I, I feel like I took a step forward, you know? Yeah. And now, uh, after the fact, now it's published, I, I kind of don't know, you know, the whole question of, like, oh, does it hurt sales to have mini-comics in an online? I, don't, I really don't know, you know. Like, and I think that's sort of, like, the... That's the the thing you kind of have to weigh up. Like, you do get more awareness, but then, you know, are people going to buy something they've read? It's hard to tell, you know. Well, I think uh, seeing the success of a Kate Beaton book... Oh yeah, <laughs> there's, there's a lot more web cartoonists than just Kate Beaton. <laughs> I know, um, but I mean, every web cartoonist is uh, is doing quite that well. No, you know? uh, not not very many cartoonists are doing quite that well. Um, yeah. But the, the, just thinking of examples like Dash Shaw with his uh, Body World, um, serializing that online, mm-hmm. I think that I personally bought the book. I read about half of it online and then when I found out there's a book coming, like oh, I'll just wait for the book. Um, yeah, I bought that too. I mean, but, but you know, so those are examples of people who are, like, I trust and I like, I liked Bottomless Belly Button and Dashaw. You know, there's a lot of, you know, notice around him. 
you know, so like I'm going to be sort of aware of this as a as a body world as a book to check out whether or not it's online. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I think a lot of cartoon, you know, it's there's no way to be somebody that people are, you know, aware of. You know, you just sort of have to keep trying different ways to sort of get your work in front of people. It's uh, it's a conversation that me and Brandon have a lot um, because he's really strong of feeling as far as his work should be. He he's happy if people are pirating his work. He's pirating, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's totally fine with that. Pirate away, um, make it available, be read, and the challenges of kind of publishers' response to that. It, it's it's definitely interesting. Um, and I think no one's really sure how to handle this now. How how are we engaging with the audience? Um, well, thing is, or... I find like on the writer side that my feeling about it fluctuates because there's a feeling when you're working on something, you know, that I'm like the most important thing for me is to is just for people to read this and see it, you know, mm-hmm. like. I feel good about this, and I and I want people to to read this work. So I don't care, you know, if I lose sales by putting it online because I just want people to read it. But then, you know, once you're not writing it anymore and it's published, and you're like, huh, is this selling well? <laughs> also, something that just popped to my mind is the fact that like one of the key things to success with a book when it is published is how it looks, right? And yep. the design work, and so you have a good package of this book. So many web comic collections are so badly put together. I mean, they look like messes. They just don't really understand what that attention to detail means. Do you um, think that uh, a lot of web car- comics cartoonists like have the desire to see this as a book? Because I know that with me. It's kind of like I just saw putting it online as like a tool, mm-hmm. but like I, my desire is to make a book. Like that's what I want to do. I don't keep on, you know. Like, and is that what? Like maybe some web cart- cartoons don't want to. Maybe they just want to make some money. That's you know, entirely like, possible, and that's that's a question I don't know if I want to answer. Um, without offending all those web <laughs> cartoonists, I, I've got a knack for offending web cartoonists. Um, <laughs> quite frequently and often. Uh, I mean, but I'm also lucky that, you know, I, you know, formed a relationship with Secret Acres who had good book design sense. You yeah. Know, they are making the kinds of books that, like, I want to, you know, be making myself. You know, something that looks like that. Which mm-hmm. was not necessarily the case with Bloomsbury. That was, was, that was also a different feeling, you know? No, you're definitely in, in good company. Um, yeah. How far were you with the book when they approached you? Um, they, uh, well, I mean, it's, I was, um, it was a, I guess I was like, the way I work is I actually, I, I, you know, I, I, um, I write the book, like, and I pencil and ink a page and finish it and then move on to the next one. So it's like very much like, you know, start page one, end of page, however, it, whenever it ends and, mm-hmm. you know, then do some revisions afterwards. But like, I don't thumbnail, I don't write scripts. Um, the, so I was maybe on issue four or five, so that's like four or five chapters out of the seven, um, because it was at a SBX 2010 um, when I was actually up, when I got the Ignats for Best Web Comic. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I had been sending my mini-comics to Barry and Leon at Secret Acres because I wanted them to carry them in, in their Emporium, because they also distribute mini-comics, because they're also, you know, fans of comics. 
as well as publishers. Um, and then I met them for the first time at that show, and it just seemed like I was definitely very interested in talking to people who were interested in publishing it, and they seemed very interested. So we uh, we met there, and then we got together for dinner like a week or so later, and kind of talked over, you know, if if I would come come be published by them. So yeah, it was it was yeah four or five chapters in. Um, did that with getting signed did you continue online I can't remember or did you stop doing it online no I finished online I did okay. stop with the mini comics which is kind of a crappy thing to do <laughs> <laughs> but there weren't that many sold that I feel that many people got burned you know like I I completed the whole thing online um, and then I went back and I took parts out and I added new sequences and I changed the ending and so what's up online now is like an archive of that first draft, so it's different than what the actual book is. Oh. Um, you know, like a good twenty something pages of extra material is in the, the actual book, including a different ending. So <laughs> I, I should I should make that more more apparent to people. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> the director's <laughs> cut. Well, I feel like I almost should take the thing online down. I really don't know how many people go to it, but like I, I don't know. I just sort of like I haven't gotten myself to do that yet but like, I want people to read the book it's the better story you know let's talk a little bit about the themes of the book uh, Troop 142 yeah. um, I feel like Freddy and me is about you growing up and uh, this book I almost feel like it's uh, kind of your anxieties of being a father <laughs> I think so yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, well, one thing I think is sort of like a recurring theme in the story, and maybe you notice this, is that the way that people treat each other is not necessarily very nice <laughs> a lot of the time. <laughs> I don't know if you picked up on that. Yeah. Uh, people are not nice to each other. And I do think it's a bit of anxiety of sort of like, I know what it was like to grow up. Like, and I have a child now, and, you know, it, it does make me very, like, you know, I do worry about, like, you know, what will it be like, you know, for her. But then also, like, I don't think the adults have it much easier. <laughs> you know? Like, it's not, like, you know, it's hard for them, too, socially, to sort of, you know, the different types of people, you know, you know, mm-hmm. they're not, it's not like it's, you know, they're not as overtly awful to each other as maybe kids are, but I don't think... I think grown-ups is just as tough, you know, you can d- dislike people, and, you know, I don't know, so yeah, that's, I think you're, you're right, <laughs> that's something I definitely think about, I mean, for me, writing the book, um, I, I think I mentioned it was a story I had in mind for a long time, and I had started writing it, writing it at an earlier point when I was in my 20s, um, long before I was a dad, before I was married or anything, um, and it didn't really go anywhere, like, it was really just about kids. And I do think sort of bringing parents into it and putting a lot more of the story from their point of view kind of like was a key for me to kind of like really to make the book happen. Um, before we started the interview, we were talking a little bit about meatballs. Um, tell me about your uh, choice of humor in the book. And um, did you feed off a lot of those movies when you were young? <laughs> um I mean, so the story 
you know, so it's about this troop of kids up at camp, a Boy Scout camp. And I was a Boy Scout. You know, a lot of the things that happened in the story, they're not things that necessarily happened to me, but, like, you know, definitely based on, like, things that happened, you know, to other kids or, you know, you know. So, like, I think a, there's a lot of uh, parts where, like, a funny thing happens or whatever is me specifically remembering something funny and, like, working it into the story. Uh, but then there's other things, like, you know, the characters are sort of, as I got to know them better, as I worked on the book, like, sort of just coming up with, um, you know, like, as you do when you're writing people, like, to sort of come up with other scenarios and, and situations to put them in, like, sort of, like, them taking on that life of their own a bit. Um, are you talk also specifically asking just about, like, how, like, kind of vulgar it is and whatever? Vulgar? I don't, you see, I don't, I don't like to use vulgar. I don't know if that's really where I would go with it, or just, uh, apropos to youthful, um, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to write kids, like, how kids are. Yeah. You know, like, they're not cool. <laughs> See, it's funny, when you say vulgar, I, it makes me think that there's something wrong with it. Okay. And, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, maybe, that's what um, I'm saying. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with it either. Um, I think, it, like, I really just, like, it's how I remember being a teenager. Like, you know, like, talking, like, constantly talking about scatological things and, you know, and masturbation and ragging on each other and, you know, and, and you're gay and you're gay and, you know, <laughs> just kind of how it was yeah. for teenage boys, you know. And so it's not like I'm, I don't think I'm judging the, uh, the quality of their conversation. <laughs> this is, you know, but it, I just wanted to sort of be like, this is how I think kids really are, you know. And remember, mm -hmm. these kids are all Boy Scouts, so they're all like a little uncool by default. <laughs> just the sheer fact that they're, even the ones who are older and theoretically cooler, are still older kids who are Boy Scouts, you know? Eagle Scouts. Yeah, like there's Eagle Scouts in there. The kids, you know, a lot of the older kids are right below Eagle, and, you know. Um, in their rank, you know, mm -hmm. so they may appear like the alphas in the setting of Boy Scout camp, but I imagine in their real high school, you know, they're, they're you know, it's the 90s, the story set in the 90s, you know, they're probably not cool, <laughs> you know. Well, you do kind of encroach on some old, your own moral expectations, I guess, uh, with some of the challenges that one of the, the characters seems to have with the, um, the norms of uh, Boy Scout attitude of the uh, the role of religion mm -hmm. and um, the how do I put this the the judgmentalness towards sexuality of the uh, yeah um, yeah well you said I I how am I what am I doing like I'm you're I'm you're you it's you're, you're, my voice in there you think or a little bit yeah and I'm wondering where that voice is coming from in that book like where you you feel the importance of putting that voice in there. Okay, so well, there's two scenes I think you sort of refer to. There's a part where dad's there's this one dad um, called Alan who's not like a uh, he's not really a Boy Scout dad. Like mm -hmm. he's never been to a camp before. His kids are in the Scouts, but he's not participating, and he sort of feels out of sorts in this sort of world of like you know manly men and whatever. Um, and then there's another dad, uh, Mr. De Maria. Who is more the opposite? Who's more like a gruff, you know, kind of 
uh, I don't know how you describe it, like overbearing, kind of, kind of like acts like a bit of a dick a lot of the time. <laughs> um, and they are, and the dads, Mr. DeMarie and the other dad who are more a part of Boy Scouts, are basically trying to wind up the Allen guy by explaining to him what the scout, scouting policy on religion is, which is that a part of advancing in scouts is to be, um, you know, is to be uh, religious. To, you know, I, I can't remember. It's uh, I'm blanking on it now, but you know, it's a uh, to to observe. believe in a higher being. Yeah, well, it's a courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, reverent. <laughs> uh, and you know, they'll say like, you know, I on my honor, I'll do my best to like to obey. Uh, I think it was God and the Scout Law or something in there. Um, so God's in there, and this is something that happened when I was a Scout. Um, the you can't advance without, um, you know, fulfilling all the requirements of being a scout, and part of that is to live up to the, uh, the scout code and all that, and be reverent. So if you were to say, I'm an atheist, and this is in the 1990s when it's set, and I don't know if it's changed now, you know, theoretically, you could, you could be prevented from advancing in Boy Scouts. So they're pointing this out to the Allen guy, because they're seeing, you know, he's sort of like this, you know, park slopey liberal type dad. <laughs> <laughs> And they were getting him wound up, you know, because he's like, that's discrimination and blah, 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 you know, probably the sort of things you probably thought when you read it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that that's wrong. Maybe. And, I mean, <laughs> but the thing is, what's tough about it, and I think it's tougher with the home, like, with their policy on gay scoutmasters, which is another thing that happened when I was there, the speech at the end where they, the guy is, uh, you know, making a big rabble-rousing speech about how they won't have gay scoutmasters in, in scouts, that, which I thought was despicable at the time, and so did a lot of the kids I knew, which is sort of nice in that, you know, it was a less enlightened age in general, but at least we were all sort of like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, is this, like, is this guy, like, you know, ranting on about this about... Um, but it's a private organization. You know, it's not, like, government-funded. It's not, like, public. So it's all sort of that kind of, like, gray zone of like these things you may find kind of gross but like is it wrong or right or is it just sort of like is this something you have to sort of come to terms with if you decide you want to be involved in scouts at all mm-hmm. you know so I was, I was trying to not come down too hard especially in the religion one on like either side of it and that was a scene I rewrote from what's online like I because I felt the first time I wrote it, it was actually more kind of uh like a little unnat- less natural um, the way the debate was going it felt more like me debating two sides of the issue and I tried to make it a bit, a bit less like that you know and sort of I don't know does that answer the question? yeah <laughs> now you're doing uh, some events coming up uh, on Friday you're doing a book club you said What? It, tell me yes. about this um, at Midtown Comics um but it's not Midtown Comics in Midtown in Manhattan. It's uh, the downtown location, which is at um, it's uh, the Fulton Street location. Um, they're going to be doing a book club on Troop 142, and it's I'll be there, and it's it's sort of like an interview, but you know, with the audience there, and you know, discussing the themes and stuff of the book. Nice. So yeah. So it's at 6:30, and everyone come on out. <laughs> and you'll be appearing at the Brooklyn Comic and Graphics Festival. In the first yeah. Saturday of December. Uh, yeah, which I'm looking forward to. I'm excited to 
have a table there for the first time. And you'll be tabling with uh, Secret Acres? Yeah, I'll be with Secret Acres. Joined by uh, such uh, wonderful talents as uh, Gabby Schultz, uh, Joe Lambert, and uh, Sam Gascan. and so. Edie Fake. I think Fake. John Brodowski as well, I think. How about uh, Edie Fake? I don't think Edie Fake is coming this year. He was here there last year. Um, but I don't know. It's yeah, a good group. A fun. It's going to be a big group. The, the Secret Acres gang. <laughs> it's a fine group of folks, and I heartily recommend folks going. As I will be there, and I'll be at home uh, crying into my um, bag of donuts. Sad. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining me today, Mike. Once again, to remind folks, I've been talking to Mike Dawson, and his new book is Troop 142, available at finer comic stores and online. And you can read some of it online, the original cut, not the director's Yeah, edition. but don't do that. Don't do that. Buy the book. Come <laughs> on, guys. Come on, seriously. Oh